Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go deeper into the world's most fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. Well, for this episode, we're turning to a part of the world we haven't talked about before, the Pacific Islands. This enormous and often beautiful area includes countries from Papua New Guinea in the west to the Cook Islands in the east, taking in other places such as Fiji and the Solomon Islands, along with smaller nations such as Nauru and Palau. Covering in total some 15% of the Earth's surface, the region is home to under 13 million people with a diverse set of cultures and political backgrounds. Problems, though, are stacking up for the region. The COVID pandemic is devastating its economy. Meanwhile, climate change has become a major security threat for the often low-lying Pacific Islands. What's more, the region has become yet another area of strategic rivalry between China and the US and other Western nations, primarily Australia. Facing these strains, the unity of the Pacific Islands has started to unravel. Five member countries of the Pacific Islands Forum have recently quit the organization in a dispute over who should take over as its next head. Well, to discuss these and other issues, we're joined by three guests today. Later, we'll speak to two experts who hail from outside the region. But first, let's speak to Lagipoiva Sherelle Jackson. Uh, Sherelle is a journalist of long standing in the region, hailing from Samoa herself. And she's written extensively on the issues affecting both Samoa and the broader Pacific Islands. And, and Sherelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sherelle, I think we should start really with the issue that's obviously been affecting so many of us around the world and to get the perspective of what's been happening uh, in Samoa and in the Pacific Islands more generally with the pandemic and, and COVID. How, from your point of view, has that hit Samoa and the broader region? The COVID situation in the Pacific has limited impact in terms of the number of deaths. Um, but it has a tremendous impact on the economies um, and the daily lives of Pacific Islanders. For Samoa, Samoa continues to be COVID-free. We've just had one confirmed case. Uh, the impact that it has is the fact that tourism, which is a, is a big factor in the economies of the Pacific Islands, um, has been highly impacted as a result of the border closures around the world. What is the thought at the moment about how local economies are going to recover from this period. Many of these countries, I suspect, would find it hard to borrow on the international markets and so on. Certainly for Samoa, what they've done is they've turned inwards, focusing on the local markets. Um, and the funding for that, it really comes from uh, private sector financing, but also some government support. There's some programs uh, funded by bilateral partners, such as the World Bank and ADB, that have assisted in small ways to kind of uh, bolster the market to ensure that these tourism establishments, and most of them are small businesses, um, somehow continue to, to thrive and survive. Fortunately for Fiji, they, they do have a much bigger market um, and they do have options in terms of uh, uh, direct flights from, from more destinations than Samoa. And they are also being quite creative about ways to, to ensure that their markets continue to thrive despite the, the lack of tourism dollars coming in. And in terms of the vaccines that are now becoming available around the world, what is the hope in terms of getting the vaccine to the Pacific Islands? 
So currently, governments are relying on their partnerships with developed countries. So for instance, Samoa is part of New Zealand's planned uh, first batch of vaccines. Um, this, is, this goes over the same for other Pacific islands who are also dependent on Australia and New Zealand. In some of the countries that have contact-free um, association with uh, the U.S., they've already received vaccines through the United States. I think one of the reasons that Pacific Islands maybe has come more into people's consciousness from outside of the region in the last few years has been this growing sense that it's another arena for the kind of geopolitical struggle between China, the US, other countries maybe like Australia in the region. Can you talk a little bit about how it feels to be talked about in those terms? How, how do people actually in the countries like Samoa uh, respond to all of that? On the ground, we could not care less, to be quite honest. If you speak to people in a village, say on Savai, the island I'm from, the struggles um, between China, uh, US and Australia do not really have that great of an impact at the, the very local level, at the grassroots level. The issue with that competition, as I see it, is when it does reach that level. And it reaches that level when projects that are approved by the government as a result of that geopolitical struggle, when projects that are approved impact the lives of of Pacific Islanders in rural communities, when it impacts the education system, when it impacts human rights. A good example is, uh, say, China is very aggressive in pushing for Chinese-built buildings as part of their aid. Those buildings lack the quality um, and the safeguards in some places um, to truly be sustainable, uh, to be uh, long-lasting, and to serve the purposes uh, that it should serve. For instance, when a hospital was built in Samoa, um, you know, the gurneys couldn't even fit into the elevators uh, that were built in the hospital. So, You know, whereas China may feel like they have a big influence in Samoa, the U.S. also has a big influence in Samoa. And the U.K. is moving in quite fast. In the past year, it now has a high commissioner in Samoa. And that's the biggest move they made in in the last 10 years is actually having a presence in in the Pacific. Day-to-day then, day-to-day politics and so on in a country like Samoa, it's not then sort of run by this big power struggle, I guess is what you're saying. It, 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 I guess it's more run by day-to-day issues that any any other country would face. If you spend a week or two weeks in a government office in Fiji, in Nauru, in Samoa, you'll find that, you know, government is going as it should um, and as it always had. So these power struggles actually read like they have a lot of impact when in actual day-to-day life of Pacific Islanders, they don't actually have that big of an impact. There's been a concern, and not just in the Pacific Islands in the last few years, that you know what China will do is um, they will typically go into a smaller country and offer to finance infrastructure or, or whatever um, with large loans. And then th- those countries, in theory, so the argument goes at least, become sort of financially dependent on China. 
um, and you know, therefore they face political pressure to do what China does want them to do in forums like the UN and so on. There has been influence um, in terms of voting at the UN by some Pacific Islands as a result of affiliations with, say, China, Japan, US, Australia, and so forth. So we can't ignore the fact that those power plays do have an impact. And it is scary. China does move in um, and they do have a long play in the region. And you're seeing that manifest itself in terms of their influence in the national economy. If you go into into Tonga, into Samoa, and many Pacific islands, you'll find that a lot of local businesses are, are now owned or co-owned by Chinese businesses. So you do see this influence growing. And one of those uh, aspects is their uh, ownership of ports, of major ports into Pacific islands, um, and the sort of tied aid arrangements with Pacific governments. So there certainly is um, an influence at the international scale, but one shouldn't discredit the solidarity among Pacific islands um, to actually stand up for, say, oceans, climate change, and other environmental and human rights negotiation stances. You talked there about climate change. That is an issue that's obviously extremely important for a number of these these countries. I think the Pacific Islands Forum has termed it the number one security threat to the region. Could you talk us a bit through the impact of climate change on the region, why it's such a serious issue and what the islands are, are trying to do about it? The issue of climate change impacts the very core of national economies of the Pacific. It also impacts the existence of atoll nations, um, and that's the security aspect. The security aspect is the ownership of maritime spaces, and any loss of land associated with climate change would also mean a loss of resources for many Pacific islands Unfortunately, a regional stance at the global level um, still needs to be strengthened in order to, for the Pacific to have a united voice um, in pushing for a united solution for the Pacific Islands. What is standing in the way of that sort of collective response? We are, as a region, under-resourced. Uh, so you would have Pacific Islands with five negotiators. The United States brings 200 negotiators. So it's not necessarily an issue with the intent of the Pacific region to have a united front, whereas it, it's rather a resource um, constraint and a capacity constraint for Pacific Islands. What are the other sort of big issues facing Samoa and the broader region at the moment? I think a big issue that tends not to receive um, international coverage is the fact that there are human rights um, violations that occur within Pacific Islands um, that don't get the attention that it should. Um, so therefore, it doesn't receive the recourses that it should. And some of these issues include gender-based violence, which is such a huge issue across the Pacific and requires a lot more attention than it's receiving now. There certainly needs to be more more attention paid to, to advancing the role of women in decision-making across the Pacific. 
Sherelle, thank you so much for joining us today and for offering those perspectives, very valuable insights into life inside the region. Thank you. Fafzai, Andrew. Well, joining us now to discuss further some of the big issues facing the Pacific Islands, we're joined by two very well-placed experts. David Ward is the UK's High Commissioner to Samoa, from where he joins us today, and he previously held the same post in the Solomon Islands. His diplomatic career has also taken him to China and Japan, among several other postings. David, thank you for joining us, and, and hello to you. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Jonathan Pryke. Jonathan is the director of the Pacific Islands Programme at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and a longtime researcher on the region. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you both with us. David, I wondered if we could start with you. Just give us some idea of the scale and diversity of the region that we're talking about and, and just how cohesive it, it is in normal times. Uh, from the outside, I think it's quite easy, sometimes too easy, to actually try to group them all together as, as one group. And while the island nations certainly do have interests in common and, and issues in common, such as climate change or ocean management, they're a very diverse set of nations um, spread over a very wide area from Papua New Guinea, a, a nation of about 10 million people with mountains that rise to I don't know, three, 4,000 metres and huge natural resources to, you know, the, the very small island state, somewhere like Nauru, where I was also accredited as High Commissioner, uh, which is one single island of about 10,000 people uh, that you can drive around in 20 minutes. And some are hugely scattered, like Kiribati, spread over thousands of miles of ocean. Uh, some are very compact. And, and we've seen some of the problems in keeping a sort of sense of unity in the region recently, haven't we, Jonathan? The Pacific Islands Forum, which is the, the grouping of the, the nations in the region, that broke up in February in, in acrimony with, with a third of the group's member countries quitting. Jonathan, can you explain exactly how this row uh, happened and how serious the split could be? Well, it's all been a bit of a disaster the last few weeks with regards to this cohesive identity that empowers them to speak on a global stage with a much louder voice than they otherwise would, has really um, been, been tested in the last few weeks. Uh, the Pacific Islands Forum is the leading political and economic institutional body in the Pacific. It's made up of 18 member nations, all the sovereign states of the Pacific, the French territories of New Caledonia and French Polynesia, and the uh, Western nations of Australia and New Zealand. It's been the primary uh, forum where leaders will get together to hash out major regional issues, major domestic issues, uh, and also to uh, speak with consensus on issues that they find important. Now, the head of this of the Pacific Islands Forum, the Secretary General, is the most coveted uh, bureaucratic position in the region. The position in the past has informally rotated between the Pacific sub-regional groupings. Um, Micronesia was adamant that this was their turn to get their candidate up. They've been underrepresented by secretary generals in the past. Uh, they put down the position that if their candidate, the Marshall Islands ambassador to uh, Washington, D.C., Gerald Zacchaeus, was not put up as a secretary general, that they would be walking from the forum. So we ended up a few weeks ago with four other candidates nominated by Pacific governments, which is really unprecedented. We've ended up with a runoff between former Prime Minister of Cook Islands, Henry Puna, 
and Gerald Zacchaeus. The vote went into the early hours of the morning and it would eventually they couldn't reach a consensus, which again is a real break of tradition. And they went to a, a secret ballot, which ended up with a 9-8 vote, really split the region in two. 9-8 uh, vote with one abstention. And we ended up with Henry Puna as the prime minister, uh, sorry, as the secretary general. Now, this has left the Micronesians in an awkward position because they have to follow through on their threat. And they have. Now, this process does take a year, so there is some room to try and find reconciliation, negotiate a compromise, have some reforms in the process of appointing a new secretary general. But, you know, clearly the Micronesians are frustrated and I think they have rights to be. And there's clear need for a lot of work to go into helping pull the region back together. So this tension is occurring just at a time when there's increased sort of geopolitical focus on the Pacific Islands and the region in general. David, could you just explain to us why the Pacific Islands have become important from a geopolitical point of view in the recent years? These are all sovereign states, and despite the, the small size of each of them, they each have an equal voice on the world stage on international fora, uh, particularly in the UN, UN organizations, the UN General Assembly, and some of their other bodies. And so 10 countries, uh, each with their own vote, that's 10 out of close to 200 members. Some of the more active members who seek to drive the agendas in those organizations have come to a greater appreciation recently of the importance of having the support of a, a bloc like that when you're seeking to propose a reform or propose a new policy or uh, something of that nature. Jonathan, there's been a lot of uh, talk and coverage in recent years about China's growing influence in the region. To your mind, what are China's ambitions in the Pacific Islands region? Is it about securing support in forums like the UN or on issues such as the independence or otherwise of Taiwan? Or could it be a more aggressive stance that China's taking? What, what are your, what's your take on that? Well, look, anyone who um, tells you they know what China's strategic ambitions are in the Pacific is, is lying to you. And I frankly don't think there is some great Pacific strategy uh, that has been written in Beijing and executed in the region. I think it's much messier than that. There are many different actors from China operating in the Pacific space. But the reality is that China's presence is rapidly growing in the Pacific this century. You see it everywhere in the Pacific, not just the countries that have diplomatic recognition with China. But, you know, from down from the village level all the way up to the political, you see very assertive Chinese actors. Now, a lot of that's probably happened organically as a result of China's uh, growth, growth and growing presence in the, in the world. It's not all strategic. Uh, now, what China might try to use this influence towards in the future, that's got a lot of people guessing. It's got a lot of people anxious, uh, in particular, Australia, New Zealand, the United States and others. Uh, you know, you, you don't you only need to look to the Second World War to see just the, the significance of these small islands uh, spread across the large blue Pacific. There is a, a real worry that China will try to leverage its influence in the region to either set up some sort of strategic military outpost that can be built on over time, or will create an environment in which one of these, one or more of these countries become the, you know, becomes some sort of vassal state. Uh, and you know, this isn't all to the Pacific, a negative thing for the Pacific. The Pacific is enjoying great engagement from all partners at a time when they really need it as a result of COVID-19. One charge that often gets levelled at, at China is that it uses so-called debt diplomacy, this idea that um, it lends a lot of money to smaller countries. Um, that helps those countries with their economies, of course, but it also gives China, in theory, some political leverage mm. over those countries. To what extent does that 
narrative reflect reality in the Pacific Islands? Debt is becoming a bigger challenge for the Pacific region. Some Pacific nations are finding themselves approaching uh, positions of debt distress. China has been a contributor to that, but not the only contributor. They're not the largest creditor to the region. The multilateral institutions like the World Bank and Asian Development Bank have also played a role. And the reality is they haven't reached a tipping point where they are in financial distress or debt distress. Uh, also, you know, when you look at the kind of assets or infrastructure that China has provided lo loans to, they're not the kind, there are a few, like the, there's a Luganville Wharf in Vanuatu, but the, most of these projects are not strategic in their, you know, the roads, the government buildings. Uh, it's not like the Hamantota port in Sri Lanka that everyone talks about that allowed for, you know, this asset, this equity swap deal where, you know, China now gets to own it, you know, lease and operate the port for uh, a number of years. There is no deal like that in the Pacific. The debt trap diplomacy, it's a nice catchphrase, but it's also uh, the wrong place to be looking because I think, you know, it, and, and I think it discredits the, the role the Pacific has and all of this in the kind of uh, loans that they are signing up to, the kind of projects they're signing up to. What about other countries and their interests in the region? David, but maybe you could talk a little bit about why you're in the region, why the UK has a, a presence in the Pacific Islands that you're obviously spearheading yourself. Uh, the British government has opened not just my post here in Apia in Samoa, but also uh, posts in uh, Tonga and Vanuatu as well. We reopened posts which we closed there about 15 years ago. We have come increasingly in recent years to rely on the EU representation overseas uh, to do a lot of work on our behalf, on behalf of the United Kingdom as well as other member states of the EU, doing some of our development work, some of our political engagement. Um, that obviously was no longer possible after Brexit, and so we have to make alternative arrangements. Um, the new posts here were announced by our then Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in 2018, when he announced the opening of 12 posts around the world um, in Commonwealth countries. Um, and I think it was an expression of a, a wish to re-engage with the Commonwealth as well. And uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, we closed, the United Kingdom closed quite a few of its smaller missions uh, overseas, particularly in small island states, uh, thinking based on the thinking that... Uh, key decisions in future were going to be taken in the big multilateral centres in New York, at the UN, in Geneva, and, and centres like that. I think there was a, a, a realisation, a growing realisation in, in, in the last few years, that actually, while that is true, that is where the important decisions on international governance will be taken, uh, you still need to have good, thick, close bilateral relations uh, with all of your allies and partners around the world to ensure that you understand how they think and that they can understand what you think and what you're trying to achieve as well. One of the areas you imagine there'll be cooperation between the UK and other countries and the Pacific Islands this year is over climate change, um, with the, particularly with the big COP26 meeting due later this year in the UK, in Glasgow. For some of the countries in the Pacific Islands, climate change is obviously an extremely serious issue. Can you talk us through why climate change is, is such a big threat to, to some of the countries in the region? Some of the um, low-lying coral island nations, such as Kiribati or Tuvalu, um, uh, they have no land surface more than a couple of meters above sea level. So they face real threats from rising sea level, not so much that their whole land surface will go underwater, but 
before that happens, the seawater will ingress on the um, on the water table, and their fresh water will be contaminated with seawater, making it very difficult to live in those countries. Elsewhere, you know, the impacts on agriculture, on fishing as well, as fish stocks move, as sea temperatures change, there are all sorts of ways in which climate change presents a threat to the existence of some states, but also the well-being, the security, even the um, you know, the basic nutrition of some populations as well in the Pacific. Jonathan, there's been some tension, I think, in the past between some of the Pacific Islands and Australia over climate change. What, so what's your perspective um, on this on this issue and, uh, and how that's going to play out this year? Now, domestic energy and climate policies are a bit of a mess. You know, 15 years ago, it seems like we went too hard, too fast, putting in a carbon tax and other initiatives um, and, you know, the government went far too far ahead of the people and the pendulum has swung way back the other direction. We were now a complete laggard. So this doesn't work, work well for Australia's interests in the Pacific. Uh, anytime our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has pegged a re-engagement in the Pacific through his step-up initiative as one of his signature foreign policy initiatives, he gets a real bruising when he goes to regional meetings like the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders meeting held two years ago in Tuvalu. So it's a challenge. It really is a thorn in the side of Australia's relationship with the Pacific. I think, you know, now we have a change of administration in the United States and you know, there is more pressure mounting domestically that we might see a change domestically. But the Pacific, you know, these they're all savvy operators. They don't want nice words. They don't want nice gestures. They don't want more money sent to the region. They want to see domestic change in Australia. Obviously, an even more immediate threat is or an immediate problem for the region is recovering and dealing with the COVID pandemic. You at the Lowy Institute have warned that Pacific Island economies face a lost decade due to the impact of of COVID. Can you explain why the pandemic has hit the region so hard and what the prospects are for uh, countries in the region to get aid from other countries that they'll need? So the Pacific has, by and large, done an incredible job dealing with the health impacts of COVID-19 by walling themselves up early from the outside world. Many of the Pacific countries remain COVID-free, you know, some of the best performers in the world in um, in dealing with, with the, the health side. But the cost has been severe for the Pacific. Uh, the, across the board, we're looking at a potential 10% uh, economic contraction and even more severe in tourism-dependent uh, economies. Fiji, the most developed and prosperous country in the Pacific, is exp- has forecast a 19% economic contraction in, um, in, in 2020. So, you know, those, these kind of numbers are eye-watering uh, and these countries do not have the financial resources domestically or access to international markets to, you know, s- stimulate their way out of this, to run major deficits like we're seeing in the developed world in, here in Australia, in New Zealand. So we've basically modelled, you know, what kind of external support is going to be needed to get the, to, you know, accelerate the Pacific back to the trajectory it was on before this major shock of COVID-19. And, you know, it's a significant number. We're looking at like five billion US dollars to be uh, in additional support to be provided by the international community. Um, I think there's, you know, there's some momentum behind this, but um, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of, you know, everyone's distracted with their own domestic crises and other global crises. But, you know, we, we can't forget about Pacific in their time of need because Pacific does have a lot of development challenges. They don't have a decade to give up um, to, to, you know, to achieve the levels of uh, development, prosperity, and welfare that you know we come to, we take for granted in in the developed world. David, you've been in Samoa, I think, throughout the COVID period. What does what has life been like there, and what are the hopes now in terms of the vaccine getting to Samoa and other countries in the region? 
Samoa was one of those countries which did everything it could to stop uh, COVID from arriving in the first place. Um, uh, there's a very tragic history behind that. A um, hundred years ago, um, Samoa was uh, one of the last countries on earth which was um, free of Spanish flu and it had a rigorous quarantine system in place. But then uh, one of the colonial government officials permitted a ship to dock which was carrying uh, an ill crew member or passenger uh, who brought the Spanish flu to the island. And as a consequence, up to about a third of the population died. And it, the 100th anniversary of that, having just happened a year ago, meant that the risk of, uh, of disease arriving in the islands from outside and, and uh, getting out of control was at the forefront of government decision makers' minds. And so the government, with the support of the people, I think, took very strict uh, rigid measures to to stop the disease from arriving. They basically closed the border in uh, March last year. I think it was about March the 19th was the last flight in. Uh, the government took a lot of precautions. We had a gentle lockdown. Government offices closed and everyone started working from home. Schools were closed. Social distancing measures were put in place. Uh, churches stopped meeting. But after a couple of months, when it was clear that the virus had not arrived, the government started relaxing a lot of those, and though there is still a state of emergency in force, a lot of those um, restrictions on everyday life had more or less been relaxed uh, a few months ago, uh, with the big exception of international travel. There's now one flight a week that comes to the country. It brings cargo, and people can leave on it every week as well to Auckland. But uh, generally, there's no more than... It, only once every three weeks at most does it actually bring passengers into the country at a rate that the, the quarantine system here can cope with. And David, what are the prospects for vaccinations in Samoa and in the Pacific Islands more generally? Samoa, like most of the other Pacific Island nations, is on that list of 92 nations which will benefit from the COVAX facility. That's the international facility run uh, jointly by the, the World Health Organization and the UN. That's funded by other international donors, including, I think it's still true to say the UK is the largest funder of it so far. And that will provide free vaccines for the most vulnerable 20% of the populations of all of those 92 countries. And those countries which wish can then buy collectively uh, vaccines for the remaining part of their population at uh, discounted rates that they get through collective bargaining through that mechanism as well. But they've just announced the allocation for the first 330 million, uh, which are due to go out in the first quarter of 2021. So by the end of March next month, we expect the first of those vaccines to be arriving, uh, including here in Samoa. Well, it's good to hear that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're all feeling that there is some hope in the air. Thank you to all of our guests today for talking us through some of the issues surrounding the Pacific Islands. Thank you to Aaron Safir, our producer for this episode. Uh, thank you to Alexander Lestrange, as ever, for doing the music for Asia Matters. You can visit our website at www.asiamatterspod.com. You can contact us on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod, and you can email us as well. Thank you so much for joining us today and until next time, goodbye.